Hello and greetings. This is a bonus episode. Uh, who would have thought that you'd start your podcast <laughs> and you'd have a bonus episode hosted by me, Keith McPherson. I'm Taylor's older brother. Uh, I would say that this episode is not about me, but it is for me to ask questions that will draw parallels to myself and uh, Taylor and how we grew up and in hopes uh, for the audience to be able to learn more about Taylor, her background, uh, understand Taylor a little bit more. And then as we both go in our lives and careers and continue to make and become and be, uh, this will stand as something um, that I think people will be able to reference. So bonus episode, Ask for Forgiveness, Not Permission, uh, hosted by Keith and Taylor McPherson. Merry Christmas to everybody out there. Taylor, how was your Christmas and how are you doing today? It was great. It's been a great trip to New Jersey. I've had a lot of fun here. Great to be with Jackson for baby's first Christmas. Um, we did a lot of really fun things. So I'm it's good, but I'm I'm ready to go back to L.A. <laughs> so the, today is the day after Christmas. For those that are watching this, whenever it goes live on YouTube, whenever you're able to put it on your podcast, um, I hosted Christmas this year. I am a father this year. So Taylor is an aunt this year. First time coming um, back in two years. The last two years I stayed in L.A. for Christmas and did mm -hmm. the, you know, L.A. thing with just friends, hosted at my own house and, you know, partied <laughs> instead of coming home and being with the fam. But, you know, this year we have baby Jack, so had to make the trip. So let's go back to the beginning. Taylor and I are about two and a half years apart. So, I mean, we spent all of our first Christmases together. Sharing uh, a room. Share, shared a room growing up for X amount of years. And uh, when we look back on all of our, you know, kid baby pictures at Christmas, <laughs> we're in all of those pictures together. Uh, first thing I want to put out there is that I learned Santa Claus was <laughs> not real at age four. <laughs> Shout out to my mom who's in the background. She's an OG. I asked her the question. Someone at daycare told me that Santa Claus wasn't real. And I went to mom to get the actual facts and she didn't lie to me <laughs> you know she let me know but taylor being my younger sister i was only like two probably barely at that time then i think i held that secret for 10 years Until so it was nine which is crazy okay so seven years then from two to nine yeah felt like a decade and i had no idea you he literally would play along with me i would wake him up when we shared a room and we would go <laughs> look for santa we'd be so excited to see the presents all made and he never told me until one day <laughs> him and sean sat me down and they were like you know santa's not real right and i still didn't even really believe it and i was they're like watch we're gonna open all the presents tonight and when we wake up tomorrow there's not gonna be any more presents and i was like no yep like fourth <laughs> grade or maybe fourth fifth grade it's like okay enough of that um, we're turning the page into just like, you know, Ma and Sean do all the setting up and yeah. the Santa and Keith, you're off the hook from having to <laughs> pretend and fake it. So uh, talk to us a little bit about the early days, being the baby, being the only girl uh, growing up in an apartment with two older brothers, one, two years older than you, myself, and rest in peace to our brother, Sean, um, 10 years older than me. So 12 years older than you, almost like 13. Yeah. 13 years older than yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like being roommates with you. I feel like when you grow up that way, you don't know anything else, you right. know? So to me, it just felt like that's what we did, you know? I shared this room with my brother. We had bunk beds. I think I thought the bunk beds were cool. I feel like we went back and forth between, you know, at, at a certain point, I switched to the top bunk and you were the bottom bunk just based on, like, age. Um, I'll always remember the story of you had, like, $5 on your little cowboy's 
locker and it <laughs> fell on the ground. And so now in my head, we share a room. It's fair game. I was like, well, I found it on the ground. So now it's mine. And you were like, no. No, it's not how the world works. <laughs> that money belongs to me. I was keeping it there, not thinking I would get robbed <laughs> by my roommate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, those early days for me, I would say, you know, I was I was very similar to how I am now. I, I had a lot of energy. I like to play. I like to play games. I like to play outside. But I also was watching sports in that room. I also was watching MTV and music videos in that room. And my next question for you is, you know, when did you know Young? Because a parallel between the two of us that I think is so strong. Uh, our grandmother actually just texts us. We're, we're going to call her after. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the trips to Jacksonville next. But... Um, I say that to say this, like, I was always into sports young. I was into music young. I was, I was drawn to entertainment. I was drawn to that stuff. And I feel like you also were drawn to art. Yeah. You were drawn to glitter. You were, were drawn to fashion and pizzazz and style very young. So when was it that something clicked? Give us a story or an example from, I'm talking elementary school ages, like before you even got the double digit age, when did you know that this is what you love, this is what you wanted to do, and this was your passion? When it came to the art and fashion, I used to always get in trouble as a little kid because I would always like tell lies. And so mom was always punishing me and like taking my Barbies and stuff away from me. So like when I didn't have toys to play with, I had to draw. And that's what I could do because you still had your books from school. Sean brought me like a set of coloring pencils like when I was probably eight or nine. And I remember that I like loved those so much. And then he also bought me um, sketchbooks and things like that. So I started to draw paper dolls and come up with outfits for the dolls to wear. And that's what I really like fell in love with art and fashion um and then we got to visit sean at fit we would go there all the time right. the fashion institute of technology where i ended up going and being able to see that from such a young age i just knew i was like oh i want to go here i want to do college in new york city like i just thought that was so cool um and then i started doing their high school program which was saturday live but um as a kid it really kind of started almost in a little bit of a rebellion i'm like well if i can't play with my toys i'm gonna figure out something else you know my creative mind and how to entertain myself and um, that's where that came from. So jail, you were in jail, had to get creative, had to use your imagination when you were locked Absolutely. up. Absolutely. You didn't have much to you. But <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I got to sit in here, I can't watch TV. <laughs> put, a, put a pin in that New York City FIT. My brother and my sister both went to FIT. The joke is uh, they didn't have a football team, so I couldn't go there. But put a pin in that one. We'll, we'll get back to FIT and uh, New York in a couple minutes. So, okay, so you knew, right? You just had that eye. You had that feel. It was something that was entertaining for you, natural for you. Yeah. Um, when you got, got into school, right, now education is something that I think we both share, obviously, because we went to the same elementary school, same middle school, same high school, not the same college. But those early on building block years of learning how to read, learning how to write, public speaking, book reports, speaking in front of class. Uh, we went to Ocean Township High School. And what I always tell folks is that our brother, he went to Ocean High School, but he went and did some time at Neptune uh, Middle School. Mm -hmm. And we moved out of Neptune. Now, um, let's ask for forgiveness and not permission uh, regardless of what you think about the statements, this is just true facts in the 90s. Neptune was a predominantly black school. It still is. It still is. Ocean Township was a predominantly white school. It still is. But they are right next to each other. They're right. maybe 
uh, eight-minute drive from each other, 10-minute drive from each other. We play each other in sporting games. Of course. I spent a lot of time playing football on that that field, and I even went to the um, – the daycare that's uh, that was over there, but that's not where I'm where I'm trying to go. Where I'm trying to go is the fact that uh, a lot of times I hear you speak on uh, your podcast, I hear you speak on your videos, I hear you speak even calling into Ryan Seacrest and things like that. Public speaking, I think you speak very well. Thank you. Uh, not to pat myself on the back, I know I speak very well, <laughs> but it's something that surprises people. Yeah. Asking again. Uh, for your forgiveness and not your permission, I think you have a small brain if you're surprised that uh, two black people can speak clearly, <laughs> sound educated, pronounce their words grammatically correct. Um, tell me how that started in school and class and you know, share any type of experience or story that you have growing up in Ocean Township, a predominantly white high school, middle school, um, just like a better education system where you pretty much had no choice but to speak correctly. Right. I mean, we grew up in Middlebrook, which is in the middle of Ocean Township, where most of the black people in the town lived. But we were still surrounded by white people. So there was never, for me, an opportunity to speak any other way than what I heard around me, what I watched on TV. Um, being from central New Jersey, people always want to comment how we don't have that New Jersey accent, that New York accent. And I always say, oh, well, we just sound like what they sound like on TV. Like, I remember being very much into watching TV, emulating what I saw, like the characters that I loved doing, like Moesha, um, Hannah Montana, all of those TV shows that I would watch. And later in life, I realized that all of those shows are based in Los Angeles, California. Mm -hmm. No wonder I live there now because I was watching so many programs where that's where they were. And I was dreaming about it and wanting to emulate similar things that they did there. And then when it comes to speaking, it was just natural for me. You know, they teach you how to speak in school. They make you read your book book reports um, in front of the class. And I never once thought I wanted to change how I spoke to sound any less intelligent, any more slang than I already do. You know, we've got slangs that we use in New Jersey. Um, Lingo. Yeah. I say vernacular. Sure. Uh, but for the most part, when you need to speak correctly, Right. You you speak to be understood. Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. Um, I feel like I always want to get my point across. And the easiest way to do that is to speak so everyone can understand you. Something that I say a lot is is I don't speak another language. So I feel like I should have a good command of the English language, sure. only speaking one language. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a good command of Ebonics. Remember that term from the uh, early 90s, which they don't use anymore? Ebony phonics, basically saying that black people spoke broken, broken English, mm -hmm. blanketing all black people as like not being able to speak correctly. Um, what I find is that a lot of times we both get critiqued sure. as talking white. Oh, that you, was what happened growing up all the time. When we were young, it was, oh, you talk white, mm -hmm. which I did have some struggles with that early on mm -hmm. because I'm not white right. and I'm proud of being black and I and I, I look black and I am black and I want to be known as a black man and, and all of that. But at the same time, you can't reserve the English language and it being spoken the right way is only for white people are sounding right. white. How, how are black people supposed to sound? Right. I need to be able to be understood. I need to use my speech as a weapon. And I did sit in a ton of classes. I did get a four-year college degree. Mm -hmm. I'd be doing myself a disservice to speak how you want me to speak. So I've always looked at our speech as a weapon. I've always looked at it as a sword. Yeah. That, like, 
if you we didn't have it, one. yeah, if we didn't have it, we wouldn't be as prepared for certain settings. When you walk into that business, you know, or that uh, corporate setting, when you walk right. into that business meeting, when you walk into that office, you know, they don't they don't know your slang. They don't know the lingo, whatever. They're talking business. They're they're reading contracts. Exactly. And then a contract is going to be in a professional language. You need to be able to speak like that. I remember being young when kids first started telling me, oh, you talk white. I didn't really know what they were talking about. You know, so it's, not it's something... a color. Yeah. <laughs> so like it was not something that I like sought to change about myself. I was like, well, this is what I sound like. This is what the people who are around me sound like. Um, and to me, I felt like it always sounded nicer than what the people who were accusing me of talking white sounded like. And I'm like, well, I don't want to sound like you. Yeah. So why would I change? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's even deeper for me. When I was young, you know, I did go somewhat of that way when I was very young, like um, trying to hang out with people from Long Branch or Neptune or Asbury, go to the mall and like be with that group because I thought, hey, these are people that look like me. This is where I'm supposed to fit in. Mm -hmm. Even going after girls, right? Like, oh, I got to go after the Hispanic girls, the black girls, sure. not the white girls. That's not actually the, the case. But when you're young and you're trying to find yourself, you do things like that. I remember even using the N-word because the N-word is so prominent in not just black culture, American culture. Right. It's in every rap song, CD, movies, um, conversations we have. But what I found growing up being the black guy in a lot of white circles was that if you use the N-word in front of all those white people, they think they can use it in front of you, in front of you or to you or at you or any kind of way. And then that can create a lot of friction. Mm -hmm. So I learned not until I was probably in my like mid 20s mm -hmm. to just keep that out of my speech, yeah. because if I don't use it and you use it against me or with me and I'm offended, you understand. Yeah. But if I use it around you, it gives you license to use it against me. And then I, I have no foot to stand on to be like, hey, I don't like I don't appreciate that. Yeah. When I was younger, I wasn't really accepted by those other groups. Like, let's say, like, you know, the black girls in the school. Um, and I guess maybe if I would have tried to change myself, they would have accepted me. Yeah. But we also don't know if that would have been true. And like from a very young age, I don't know if it's because I'm a Sagittarius or just who I am. You know, maybe it's the way Ma raised us. I never felt pressure to conform to try to be like anyone else other than myself. Like I always knew, like and even when I would get teased, if I got teased for being overweight. If I got, you know, teased for acting, talking too white, I would just be like, that's your opinion. And like, Nothing I can do about it. Exactly. And it, it never really got to me. You know, I, I had girls in middle school. Um, make a list of like the eight reasons why it sucks to be Taylor McPherson. Uh, I was like, I feel like I guess I was upset about it in the moment, but I just, I kind of always had this inner knowing that like they're jealous of me. And I feel like mom right. would say that too. Like when it would ever, whenever someone would do something like that, she'd be like, those people are just jealous of you. That's Don't before you had internet haters. They're writing, you're taking time out of your day to write in a notepad, eight no, reasons. No, this was or... like middle school. So we had like AIM and chat Okay, this rooms. was digital? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we would have those like Cyber bullies. forums, you know, like those anonymous forums <laughs> of course. where people could go on and say whatever they We wanted. had that in Ocean High School. Yeah. It was called Sparta. That's what it was. It. That's what it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're we're getting further along into the uh, the story here. We're in a, in like the high school time. So, how many boyfriends do you have in Ocean High School? You probably had a ton of them. Zero, stingy with De Niro. I I think, <laughs> I think I had something to do with that. I was so, that's my one question for you about that era. Me me being, <laughs> uh, and like and you know and here here's I guess twofold some things. I did fit in with all of the black Hispanic kids in our school. The way it was set up, there were three main apartments, sure. like lower income housing in our town, mm -hmm. where we lived in Middlebrook, 
Continental Gardens and Twinbrook. Mm -hmm. I actually did blend in with those kids and the white kids because I played sports. I was going to say, you'd be playing outside and running So I'm going to play football with these guys. I'm going to play basketball with these guys. Right. I was very much into Barbies until I was like twelve. And you could you could call me you could call me white boy because of my vernacular, but I'm in the end zone. I'm hitting a shot in your face. Mm-hmm. Then there's respect there. So me coming into Ocean High School as a freshman, our freshman football team was undefeated. Um, we ended up losing like I think the last game that stopped us, but there was no no um, like freshman playoffs. I started varsity quarterback at sixteen my sophomore year. You're right. still in the eighth grade. Right. So now my name is being printed in the newspaper. I'm representing the town. Right. McPherson scores two touchdowns and leads Ocean to victory. Headlines. Mm -hmm. So I'm blazing a trail in Ocean High School before you even step foot in there as like, you're a freshman now. Your brother is the returning varsity quarterback as a junior, making all sure – um, getting recruited. Everybody knows who I am. Not tooting my own horn, but I mean, come on, yo. That's how it was. Yeah. <laughs> but speak about known. stepping into Ocean High School as a freshman, knowing that trail was already blazed and that your last name when they called attendance, Taylor McPherson. Absolutely. I was yeah. known as Keith McPherson's sister. Oh, you're Keith's sister? And in fact, that really did not go away until like our 20s. And honestly, like now that I live in L.A., nobody knows you. <laughs> so I'm not Keith's Yet. sister anymore. <laughs> 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 you're gonna come to LA and they're gonna be like, oh, the Sparkle Queen's your sister? Good. This is gonna happen. God, give it up. I'll work for you. Put me to work somewhere. Um, oh, yeah. We'll, we'll I already have. Too. We'll get there. Um, but yeah, I remember that. Like, And I, it didn't bother me until people tried didn't try to learn my name. They'd be like, oh, you're Keith's sister? I'd be like, yeah, my name is Taylor. But then it would be the same people be like, Keith's sister, Keith's sister. And I'd be like, I do have <laughs> a name that is my own name. Yeah. Um, and I think it honestly, it made me work harder because I wanted to carve my own path and be known for my own things, like doing the morning announcements in high school. And that was like my thing. And I remember asking Miss Parker every day. You were on almost. student council, right? Yeah. 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 And I was on student council too, but... I don't think you did that because of me, because you did completely different things. Like I ran for student council every year in middle school and never got elected. Every time I would run, and they would never. I didn't run in in middle school. You know my story. I saw my freshman year the kids leaving to go on the bus to um, <laughs> student council day, and they were going on a field trip to Six Flags, and I'm I'm like. I almost left and jumped on the bus with them. <laughs> yeah, you're like, wait a minute. And I'm like, how do you do that? And then the next year I ran for student council and I was on it every year, sophomore, junior, yeah, senior year. Uh, I don't know if, you know, I I, I think I'd, I never really told you until like a couple days ago. And I said, like, I blazed my trail knowing that it was like a fight or flight situation. I'm like, mm. either you're going to use that to your advantage and become something yeah. or you're going to wilt in the shadow of it and be like, I can never. And I, I knew you came from out of our hut. I knew yeah. you came from... Uh, you know, Crystal McPherson and Sean and Keith and like you weren't like that. You were right. going to rise in your your own way. So uh, I go on and leave the, the high school um, and take my scholarship to James Madison. And you're a cheerleader and you're on student council. Yeah, and you're made varsity. Yep. You're making your own name and you're doing your own thing. And you're deciding to go to FIT was one of the first kids in my class to get accepted into college. That was big. 
because yeah. FIT does rolling admissions. So I got accepted in like January. I remember we were out at a- And you were able to tell people that? I know we absolutely. used to have to meet with counselor. How, how did that go and then how did people find out about that? Um, we were out at a fire drill one day and the big package, because when you get accepted, they send you the big package versus the small letter, had come to the house and Ma happened to be home and she was texting me. She's like, can I open it? It says, congratulations. And I was like, yeah, open it. And so we're out at this. And I remember like screaming at the fire drill, like, yes, like I got in. And so now everybody's looking because everybody is out of their classes. Right. And I told one of my teachers, I was like, you know, my mom just told me I got into FIT. And then it was like, oh, amazing. So now people are, you know, bigging you up and people are still waiting until like April to get their acceptance letters. But I was already in and set. And it was great. That was another reason why I ended up not getting a car, because my birthday, being the youngest person in my graduating class, that was another thing. December 6th. Yeah. My mom ma pushed us through. Well, pushed me through. Um, I started school early and then I got pushed through by taking qualifying tests. So for my entire time. I was the youngest person in the graduating class, and my birthday's in December. January, I get into FIT. I realize I'm going to school in New York City, not going to need a car. So I never tried to, like, save money, get a car, do that whole thing. Like I did. Yes, exactly. Took savings bonds and got a $3,500 hoopty. Yeah. But it had 212 subs in it. I was riding. They they knew the boy when they see me coming <laughs> yeah, through. Yeah, that's right. Oh, my God. The music was always so loud. You know, when you went away to college, that was one of the first things that I miss, like, because we would sit there in the living room and you would blast music on the computer in the stereo. And I would sit there and I'd watch TV, probably couldn't really hear it, but I was just watching it. Maybe it had captured. When they play that new Jeezy, all the dope <laughs> boys go crazy. Yeah, I'd, I'm always, I've always been a loud music person. Always. Um, and then when I would watch TV and you weren't there and I was just the TV sound, I was like, oh, this is weird. It's so quiet now. You know, <laughs> this is what I wanted all that time. I now know, that I have I it, I don't know if I, I really. I miss him. Where is he at? <laughs> I was down in Virginia getting tackled and getting drunk and mm -hmm. getting into extracurricular activities. I talk a lot about how uh, one of my greatest uh, skills or, or things is knowing when to leave situations. Mm -hmm. And I knew to leave the first college that I went to. I went to James Madison because it was the furthest scholarship I had from right. 1413 Rustic away. Drive. I wanted to get away and see what it's like. <laughs> Um, seventy percent girls, but you know, I I learned a lot. I didn't drink in high school. I was straight edge in high school. I didn't start drinking until like the end of my senior year. Yeah. My crash crash crashed out course in drinking was freshman year at JMU. By my sophomore year, I started thinking about leaving, and I transferred home to Monmouth. And I, I feel like I absolutely needed to do that yeah. because I was undeclared two years, and then I transferred to Monmouth, knowing okay, I'm gonna play football at this school. But the reason I'm choosing this school is because I'm going back home and I want to major in radio and television yeah. and get my communication degree. Absolutely. Like I didn't have that walking in as a, a freshman to James Madison, but I knew what, what the target was and what I wanted when I came home to Monmouth. Yeah. What's the biggest thing um, for you at FIT in college? Tell us about what you majored in and what you learned and the biggest thing you took from going to school there for however long you went in, in, in that time. Going into college, I thought I wanted to do fashion design. And Ma signed me up for what's called FIT Saturday Live, and it's a program for high school students. Um, and at 16, I used to get to go and take the train in by myself and walk myself to FIT and do that whole thing. And on our first day of orientation, a woman was giving a speech and she said, you know, if you think you like fashion, you like to draw, but you don't really like to sew and you're not really prepared to be in a sewing room, fashion design is not your major textile design is your major and I really took that into account and then it turned out one of the classes that I had signed up for um, was fabric painting and so my teacher um, was on the staff of the textile and surface design department 
So as soon as I was in my class, I started talking to her about it and she was like, oh yeah, absolutely. This would be way better for you. I excelled a lot in those classes. FIT makes you come in person to do an audition drawing session in order to get in, which I honestly think is pretty cool. I don't know how many other like art schools have you do that. It's almost like taking a standardized test, but you're drawing. So there was like life drawing um, that I had to go in person and do. And now I'm, as a 16 year old, meeting the college professors, the people who are in yeah. the department, knowing them. Um, I guess learning at a very young age, building relationships with people, the, how, the importance of people Networking. knowing who you are. Yeah, um, making impressions on people. So I was able um, to go the textile and surface design route um, and I applied for that major, I got accepted and it was huge for me. I mean, FIT is one of the most prestigious art schools in the country, um, so that was huge. And then after being in FIT, I realized because they're really great with showing you what the job is going to look like practically. So mm -hmm. they would take you like on a field trip and say, here is a textile design house. Like this is what people look will do. Um, and it was a lot of people sitting in cubicles and like not really doing anything too creative when at entry level. Um, and I kind of knew in that moment, I was like, oh, I can't come and do this. Like I'm like, this is essentially still a nine to five. Like that wasn't quite what I was looking for. And if I am going to do a nine to five, I always knew from a young age that I would work for myself. I always knew that. Um, and so I was like, if I am going to work, for, if I am going to do a nine to five, I need to build the skills so that when I'm ready to start my own business, I can do that. And so then that's why I ended up going into fashion PR, because I wanted to learn the business behind fashion and art and um, that realm of working. So as you're navigating and you're finding your true north, you're canceling out things that, you know, nah, that's not me. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, as much as I loved like sitting in a painting room all day, like we would have a four hour painting class. And like, I would love that. And you're you're mixing colors. You know, people are walking around. You're asking your like, oh, what do you think about this? Does this look good? Let me see yours. You're learning how to put things in repeat. That's all what textile and surface design is about. So when you see a pattern on a fabric, the way it repeats, that's essentially what I went to school to learn how to line that up, how to make it perfect. If you're doing a plaid, how to do that in a computer design class. If you're doing screen printing, how to create a screen and, and emulsify it and, and um, get it to repeat over and over and over mm -hmm. again. And so um, that's what I learned and I, I really did love it at the time and I definitely believe that there will be a point in my future where I go back to doing something like that. Um, but it was one of those things that starting at the entry level point of that, I knew it was gonna kill my creativity and my love for art because it was a lot of changing other people's designs from entry level. Yeah, yeah. I know as a communication major, some of your gen ed courses are in PR. Mm -hmm. Like Nicole was a communication PR person. And I took some of those classes, I was like, hell no. I even <laughs> I even tested some of them at JMU. I remember sitting in a big class and I'm like, nah, I don't wanna go this way. Yeah. The other side of communication was more media. Yeah. Um, you mentioned like sewing and um, being in that type of capacity. Like, um, and it made me think of Grandma Edie. Now in my story, I always tell people that going down to Jacksonville when we were kids tweaked me and in a good way in a bad way at the time but in a good way that I needed it right yeah. as we speak about being in uh, the white suburb and being the black kids the minorities right. in an 88 percent white school growing up we would spend summers in Jacksonville mm -hmm. where it's all black that was the first time I was ever told that I was speaking white was in Jacksonville that was when I had that culture shock which is the exact word for it mm -hmm. now I'll, I'll say this and we'll skip through it quickly because we got to get to to modern day in the next like 20 minutes or so going to jacksonville you were with grandma edie right in the house in the house but she had fabrics and she right. was sewing yeah, so. 
and she was doing that type of stuff and kind of kept you right under her next to her. I was two years older than you and a boy. I was able to go out into the streets Ripping and running. And what happened to me outside of uh, the <laughs> house in those streets mm -hmm. tweaked me a little bit where like I saw the hood. I right. saw the hood of hood. Uh, I saw guns. Mm -hmm. I saw drug dealing. I saw free lunch. I saw poverty. Mm -hmm. I saw baby mamas, baby daddies. Domestic mm -hmm. violence. Scary I looking dog. That's like yeah. I saw people like so. I'm far away from home, and when I open my mouth, I sound like a little white boy, and I don't have a southern draw, or whatever. Th those experiences were hard at the time as a kid. Yeah. But I I fought through them, and again, I had athletics. We're gonna go to the basketball court. Right. That I can equalize myself there. We're gonna play football. Right. That there's no communication in there. The communication is all feet and and hands. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, speak to Grandma Edie. Let's give her a nod because I give Grandma Edie a nod for obviously me being out there in the streets. But I'm very like not religious, but I'm spiritual. I wear this chain. This is a cross around my neck that I got in Jacksonville because we used to go to church four times a week with my grandmother. Bible study Sunday. And man, when you're fighting your cousins, when you're fighting random dudes on the basketball court, when you're eating peanut butter and jelly for dinner, ramen noodles for dinner. You you gotta find the Lord. You yeah. gotta pray for something, and I I literally had that from age like six, seven, eight, mm -hmm. and it stayed with me my entire life, and yeah. it's been a foundation for me. So, what's something you got out of the trips to Grandma Edie in Jacksonville? We went down there only like two or three summers, but they were long summers. They were impactful. When you're at such a young age, yeah, you know, time feels like so much longer than it actually was. Um, definitely the sewing like that's such a great life skill that I'll always know how to do mm. you know threading a sewing machine by the time I got to high school and they were teaching you how to do it in home ec I was like oh I know how to do this you know um, I also in middle school and high school started making my own clothes a little bit because I had um, access to a sewing machine so I would take uh, jeans and turn them into skirts I would make I would take old jeans and turn them into bags you know I was I guess upcycling before upcycling was you know such a modern trend that it yeah. is now um, and that's where I really thought I wanted to lead into the fashion realm. Um, so huge amounts of inspiration from that. You know, if I didn't learn that at five, I may not have thought I wanted to go into the fashion realm at all. Yeah, and Grandma Edie definitely spared you and probably saved you because you would have seen some stuff as a little girl that I wouldn't even have wanted you. You, you belonged in the house. I belonged yeah. in the streets. I, I barely survived that. But all right, back to where we were at FIT. Yeah. Right. You spoke of um, fashion PR. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, you got to speak of the internships that you got while you're at FIT. Coming out of FIT, you had a job right away. That's something Absolutely. that. Absolutely, that was a huge goal. I, for I won't say I was jealous but i definitely was like man that's i wasn't able to get an internship nobody was checking for me when i was in college i applied to some didn't hear any back yeah. and i struggled after college i didn't have a job i couldn't get a call like yeah. you know i had to really hustle and figure it out you had the internship in college Absolutely. turn that into an opportunity so speak about going to school in new york city market one the hardest place to make it but then you making a way where you didn't even have to graduate with a four-year bachelor degree. Right. You you didn't need to. You had the connections to start working and um, making a living in New York City so young. It's building relationships. So when I was at FIT, I got a job at the Student Life office, and a woman, Deborah Peyton-Jones, also I was building a relationship with her. She really liked me. 
she had an opportunity to do a fashion week event with Robert Birdie. And at the time that was huge. He had this space called the Lux Lab and turns out it was two blocks away from FIT. Mm -hmm. Super easy to get to. Um, and so she, she's like, you know, there's gonna be a lot of celebrities and like influential people here. I'm specifically giving this to you. I'm not putting it on the job board because they told me that it like has to be a specific person. And I was like, okay. So I go and I do the event. The entire time I'm just there on the door. I think I was just handing out gift bags. Oh, and this is what it is. Now it's coming to me. I tried to remember this story the other day and I could not remember what it was. So people were trying to steal gift bags or take gift bags that weren't really allotted certain gift bags. And I remember Robert said something because I'm just doing the door. I don't even really get to talk to him. He's inside schmoozing everyone, promoting his brands, all of those things. And at a certain point, he said, oh, like, you know, make sure you're on people, like, if they get the gift bags. And I was like, oh, don't you worry about me. I will make sure that only, like, the right people get what they're supposed to get. And he, like, really liked that in me, like, the way I sort of, like, had a quip and was immediately like, oh, yeah, don't worry, I, I got this. And at the end of the day, they called me into his office, and he was like, I want to offer you a job. Like, do you want to intern here? Good. And I was like, yeah definitely and then because i lived so close being at the fit dorms and being at school they would call me at random times and be like hey can you come by and help us stuff some gift bags can you come by and help us research something awesome. and i would always take say that yes. opportunity every time yeah i'm like if i'm sitting in my dorm room you know watching disney channel as i still was as a 20 year old i was like <laughs> i will definitely <laughs> go and help you guys do stuff so i really started to build a rapport with them um, and this is back in the day when you weren't getting paid to intern. I remember as I was sort of leaving there, that's when that whole like expose scandal happened with the people at Condé Nast and them, you know, feeling like they weren't making money. So I was still working for free. Granted, Robert always took care of us. Like he would give me um, gifts and all different things. Like I think he gave Sean a cell phone, you know, like we would get a lot of different swag um, in exchange for working for him. But I built so many relationships and that's where I met Cindy Riccio. And right she did multiple events at the Lux Lab for her brands, promoting them. And she also just liked me, you know, I'm very lucky that I can create a good impression on people. So I'm genuine, I'm myself and I'm a hard worker. So You're blessed, there's no luck. Yeah. And I don't mean to cut you off, but people a lot of times say that to me, you're lucky, you're lucky. And I'm like, no, it's a combination of things, bro. Like luck is preparation meeting opportunity yeah. we're blessed people if you stay we're, ready you don't have to get ready stay ready so you don't have to get ready we're a combination of things the universe never unconnects like i say yeah. you were at fit conveniently there when they needed you you met your energy yeah. your aura from young gave off where they saw something in you right. right i have people in my life the same way and like how you were able to kick their names up all it takes is one person to give Absolutely. you an opportunity all it takes is one person to see you for the true you as you're finding your way even young right. and, and you got to always you know thank those people and give props to those I'm people so appreciative of both of them I along still, the way you know tell them that they helped me build the foundation of knowing how to run a business i was cindy's first full-time employee yeah. so it would just be me and her and i would listen to her on conference calls mm -hmm. i would read the emails that she would send out and i learned so many things just from watching her work and it was so like invaluable the things that i got to absorb and take in just being a sponge being able to go to meetings with her, being able to make pitch decks and present them to like major, major clients. And she would tediously go over these pitch decks with a fine tooth comb. Like I would put them together and she would go and she'd be like, nope, you gotta do it again. Nope, this isn't right. Change this, do this again, change this, do this again. And, and it would probably be frustrating, annoying, but it was a process and it was for a reason. Absolutely. And now looking back, I'm sure you, you thank her for it. So oh, definitely. Uh, you mentioned Sean getting a free phone and Sean's name has come up for anyone watching that um, isn't aware our older brother Sean passed in 2015 in New York um, just a tragic accident he fell to his death from the building that he worked in 
but similar to Taylor, they both went to FIT. They both did not have to stay at FIT and get four-year bachelor degrees because they already made the connections in the city to start working and just say, I'm out. I'm, I'm already making money. I have a job. What else do I need to do? Yeah. I, I already have this on my resume. I'm going to keep building. So let's talk about where you were and where you were working in 2015 when we lost Sean. I was at MTV. I was at 1515 Broadway. And I feel like you were working at 1500 Broadway right across that wasn't until right after. So okay, but so at, speak about from Sydney, uh, Sydney, Cindy Riccio, to that time, um, like where you worked and and um, like how you got there. Yeah. So doing fashion PR, fashion PR is twofold. It's press releases, pitching, um, people in the media, and then it's events. I always more so ex excelled in the event side. Right. When we would have a brand event, I would you know do it from top to bottom, amazing. But when it came to the press releases, I struggled because I don't have a journalism degree. You know, it's a lot of typing and words and yes. Yeah. So it got to a point where um, there was a lot of different things that I just physically didn't know how to do. Um, and it came to a time for me to leave Cindy Riccio Communications. But also there was a company called Lulu. It was an app, technically a dating app, but it was like a rate your date app where girls could go on and put a profile for a guy and say what they thought about him so other girls could go on and read it. And it was all in hashtag language and it was super trendy for 2015 at the time. Um, and so I went to an event that they had there talking about building relationships. So I went to an event, it was around the corner from where I was and I kind of knew I needed to make a shift. Um, and so I started kind of putting it in their ear and they're like, oh, we need someone new in the marketing department. And so I was able to smoothly like make that transition over and have a job backed up before I left Cindy Riccio Communications. And I was because like I knew it was time for me to go there. I kind of exhausted what I could really do in PR. Um, and I also kind of started to not like it so much. The fashion industry is a little rough. You have to sure. really love it. It was the music industry, the sports <laughs> and it's New York industries because they're full of people that were were there in the 90s and the 80s and they have this culture of like cutthroat being yeah. used being yeah. you know not spoken to nicely all of that stuff so i needed to get out of fashion moved over worked at lulu and i worked at lulu for about seven months and i um created this whole thing where we were rating different guys based on like where they worked in the city so we had like we did a viacom one we did like all of these like major like buildings that people worked in and we found the guys there we made profiles for them and it and it was a good news story but Lulu overall couldn't sustain itself because women realistically that often were not meeting that many men that we want to go on and make a whole profile for. Right. So the app went defunct. The app went defunct. Um, and so now I was essentially let go with a severance. But I had also smelled that coming. So I was making moves to get a new job. So um, another friend of mine, her name is Hannah. She was working at Brand Connections in Times Square, which was that you know 1500 building mm -hmm. where I was able to work, where we worked across the street from each other. Towards the end of me leaving Lulu, Lulu going defunct, laying me off, I had started to interview at Brand Connections. Got the job at Brand Connections. I remember this was like one of the first times I skilled it. Like I, could, I got like uh, maybe an $8,000 raise from one place to the other because they were like, oh, well, how much were you making before? And I told them definitely a number higher than what I was making. Um, and they were, oh no, it was $12,000. At this time, in, at this time I was making like 43,000 or something at Lulu. And they were like, how much were you making? And I said 50. Um, and then they were like, how much do you wanna make here? And I was like 55 and they were like, okay. 
<laughs> and they gave me that. And so that was a lesson that I learned there, like negotiating, like yeah. always, you know. Close mouth, don't get fed. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And don't like, why would I tell them exactly what I was making? So then that was a great jump for me to go over to Brand Connections. However, I had gotten hired from Brand Connections, but I wasn't set to start for two weeks. So in, I guess, let's say right after I got the job, it might have been that same weekend was when Sean passed. Maybe there was a, a week in between. It was right around it, I remember. Yeah. It was but very I had, close. I had already... October mm -hmm. 2015, mm -hmm. end I, of that year. Yeah. Like, I had already accepted the job. I knew I was starting there. And so it was a slight blessing because I hadn't started yet. So now that we're grieving and we're doing all the funeral preparations and people are coming to our house, I didn't have to take off from work or call out because the job hadn't started yet. And then once it was time for me to start... Um, I remember Hannah coming to me and like greeting me the first day I got there and being like, oh my God, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I just like pulled her aside and I was like, can you not tell everybody in the office that I just yeah, lost Yeah, I don't want to be the new girl that's also grieving. grieving and lost her older brother. And I was like, this is my only- Sympathy from strangers is weird. Yeah, I'm like, this is my only place that I can go where they don't know that I just lost my brother. Mm, I can escape I can, it here. I need that. And especially to learn how to do my job. I remember in like the first week or two that I was in the office, I'll Be Missing You played just like- in a playlist you know like they're just playing it and i literally had to like get up and go to the bathroom yeah and, like, it's tough i've know, had that type of trigger together. too yeah so i mean this is gonna need a part two so wrapping up part one here the yeah, last a whole episode on sean yeah i mean especially now that i just asked uh you know because i remember us eating lunch did we eat lunch at viacom or we, like, we would meet for lunch yeah, yeah maybe we ate lunch in the roof at viacom because we ended up working across the street from each other in new york right when we lost our brother and i went back to New York. So to wrap up part one, I want to ask you the question because I feel like it was not long after. And I think this is a good way to pick up the second part of this episode, which we'll probably shoot in my home studio. Um, after, you know, we, we lost Sean. I remember having some hard talks with you. I remember you crying on my shoulder. I remember me crying a lot. But I remember saying, like, people are going to judge us. Absolutely. People are going to look at us now. Mm -hmm. and silently wonder how this is going to affect us, mm -hmm. what we're going to do next. Mm -hmm. Are we going to fold? to make up then. Right. So what what was the next thing you started to do? Once you lost Sean, you, you grieved. I know I gained like 20 pounds. I, I wasn't in the gym. I did the opposite. But when I finally could like breathe and come up from it, I hit the ground like working out harder, went to where I started applying things. So mm -hmm. between that time – um, and then I really want to pick up the second part of this when you left the area. Yeah. But like between that time in 2015 going into now 2016, uh, what what was the motivation? What were the first couple things you did uh, after losing your brother to change your life that yeah. actually propelled you into saying, I'm going to take a one way ticket from New Jersey yeah. to L.A. and, and completely <laughs> change my life, not tell anyone and pick up in California? Um, one of the first things that I remember after Sean died, we went to that um, brunch place in like Wall. Me like, moms. Yes. Yeah. And I remember I put makeup on just to go to brunch with like you, mom, and Keisha. And I was like, everyone's going to be looking at us everywhere we go. Mm -hmm. and I was like, they're not going to catch me like not looking okay. And then. Always you know, on. When, exactly. And then when someone, when everyone started bringing the food to the house, I remember taking a video for my Snapchat of all the food because my friends kept being like, what can we bring? And I was like, don't bring any more food to this house. Bring tequila. And at the end of it, got I had plenty of food. We were getting so fat over much. here. Exactly. I had so much tequila and I was good on alcohol for like the rest of the year. Um, and right before he passed, I was 
starting to get healthier in terms of like losing weight um and i remember saying to myself like him passing like i'm not gonna get fatter after this like i'm gonna lose the weight and then the following year was my first year going to coachella and that was my biggest motivation i was Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna be walking around with victoria's secret models and famous people and like nobody fat goes to coachella that's why i told myself now that i've been (laughs) going for years i know it's not true. whatever you got to tell yourself to work (laughs) out and eat right and motivate yourself yeah and i lost 31 pounds from april to or from january to april and I was just like so determined. And that was another thing of having that new job that helped me because I was on such a resumented schedule. You know, like I would get off of work, I would go take a workout class. You would go to the gym, you would come back and, and pick me up and we would do this, you know, very scheduled every week. And sure. I would meal prep for the whole family on Sundays and we would all eat like healthier food. And it just, you know, really changed all of our lives for the better instead of sitting in our sadness, which it would have been so easy to do because I think it took me like a year and a half just to be okay to tell people the story without being fully drained or crying or breaking down and just losing it. So good place to stop. Um, The next question will be, you know, you moving out from Ma's house, all of us together, you getting your own place and only having your own place for a couple years where you just said, I'm out, I'm going to LA. Yeah. I wanted to move to LA, but I knew right after Sean passed, it was too soon. Sure. I was like, I can't leave my family right now, you know? Um, but I also had no idea at the time what I would have done in L.A. But I, I, it was, I told you it was always calling me from a little kid, you know. I wanted to go to college there. And I was like, I'm not flying you home every time you want. I remember you young saying you were going to pack up a car and drive. That was before oh, you thought about a plane and, mm-hmm. you know, it actually materialized. But your yeah. thoughts become things. So yeah. that's a great place to stop. Yeah. So stay tuned for part two. It'll look a little different, but shout out to Sky Llamas Productions. Uh, this is a great studio. This was part of uh, my sister's Christmas gift where I was like, let's let's start this podcast, this bonus episode, and get it professionally done and uh, give it a different look. And this will be on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast. So stay tuned for part two. Keith McPherson, Taylor McPherson, ask for forgiveness. Not permission, my life motto. Sometimes you just have to do things and worry about what other people are going to think and the consequences later.